Marshawn Sagar here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Everyone, happy Friday. Back to the show. Turns out, Sagar, when you actually offer people exclusive content, they sign up for Supercast more than we just say, hey, in good faith, assume we'll send something eventually. Ugh. So I want to say a huge thanks to everyone who checked out our exclusive interview that we dropped this week and then our extended Q&A, which also dropped. So like once again, if you want to support the show, not just to help Sagar and I do this work and make everything bigger and better than ever, but actually get your own exclusive content. If you can't get enough for the show, we'd love for you to go to realignment.supercast.com. And Sagar, if you take us out on the Supercast ad read, that'd be awesome. Yeah. That's right. We need you guys to sign up. We've got exclusive content. Also, we want to buy the realignment. No, sorry, realignment.com. Um, and it's very expensive. So uh, if you guys can help us out, if you can pitch in for Supercast, that is one of the first things that we're going to outlay a significant chump of change on. And by the way, nobody go out there and buy it and bid up the price. Because I'm going to be My pretty pissed. My girlfriend Olivia that said not to. I was talking to Olivia, and she said, "Don't shout it out on the show because she she has a uh, Substack. It's called Acute Condition, mm. and the second she launched her Substack, quickly Acute Condition went from being two hundred dollars to five thousand dollars. Yeah, there you go. It's right. a little too convenient. So whoever. If there's a trader in our midst who's going to sell us out to make a quick buck, yeah, look, we're just don't gonna, do we're going to try. Uh, how about this? We will not pay any more than what it's currently worth. Whatever it's currently worth, You're right. that's the floor. So if you buy it and you try to bid it up, fuck you. We won't pay it. Out of spite, <laughs> we'll do something else. No, because you're right. Because what Olivia ended up doing is she counteroffered for five hundred dollars instead of the five thousand, and the person took mm. the three hundred dollar difference. Yeah, there so you go. you're right, Slugger. We've we've yeah. declared it with your supercast support. We promise we will not overexpend on mm-hmm. the actual realignment domain name, which would be amazing to have. Because guys, trust me, it is exhausting saying realignment.supercast.com, realignment.substack.com. Make it easier for everyone and help us do that. Okay, on to the discussion episode. People really like these. So we have a bunch of requested topics. The first one is just a general reaction to the Peter Zion episode. It's one of our biggest episodes ever. People really like Peter. If a guest like him, it's usually best for us to take a step back and not kind of push our perspective as much. But Sagar, I'd love for you just to give just like an opening reflection on the the really big ideas and overview he had. Yeah, Peter's a fascinating guy. Uh, he's very declarative in his statements. I don't even necessarily agree with all of them, and I think that that's fine. But I think that his framework for analyzing the world is really important. And I mean, to me, the most profound and important thing that he said that I'm just going to keep repeating is that glo- inflation has been low over the last 30 years, primarily because of the innovations within globalization. That is now over no matter what happens with Ukraine. And that means a massive energy inflation. That means global supply chain disruption. That means food supply chain disruption. That means hardening the way that we think about American business, both from being comfortable with inventory to being comfortable with ditching just-in-time delivery, which is empirically going to lower the stock price, which is going to change the way that we think about capital markets and about what business actually means. It also should spark a reckoning in terms of industry that we deem strategically important to the United States, ESG and ditching some of these frameworks, which were essentially just underwritten by globalization and low interest rates, that day needs to end yesterday. Um, And it's going to take a while, but I'm confident that we will. Well, I'm not confident that we will get there. I'm confident that we will 
all generally understand that we need to go there. Uh, whether that will actually play out in practice, I don't know. Uh, but I personally think that was the most important thing that he said. Yeah, and this is in the actual book. We've sold a bunch of these on our bookshop, so people should really go check them out. I've really enjoyed reading the book. And the thing he says very early in the book that I think is very profound, and I'm curious to I'll give my thoughts after this bit of it, but I would love to push you on this one a little bit, is he points out how up through 2020, most elections were about a candidate who was basically challenging globalization, challenging trade deals, challenging immigration, challenging all of those side effects of this broad globalization system, usually successful being able to do that. And if the whole point of his book is that that era is over, so we're no longer going to merely worry about the after effects, but also worry about the fact we don't have the benefits, how do you think that's going to reshape our politics? You kind of know what I mean? Like the oh, idea I think of it's just actually- I think it's going to accelerate it. Uh, I mean, look at the Biden administration right now. They're incompetent. You have the White House press secretary saying gas companies should lower prices to be patriots. Hmm. Yeah, that's how that works. That's how capital markets work. Thank you, Con, Karine uh, Jean-Pierre. Same with refineries. They're like, we're calling on the refineries to increase production. You Hold on a second. You don't know, why do you think that they are not refining more in the first place, number one, we've had massive explosions, accidents, and stuff that has happened. Number two, we haven't built a new refinery in this country since 1977. Number three, under pressure actually from the Democratic Party and by special interests, we've expanded biofuel production, and that has reduced the amount of capacity that we have in order to refine straight up oil and diesel. So actually, unless sorry, you're- Actually, sorry, can I push you on that one? Uh, yeah. Every, especially the biofuel. Dude, the biofuel one is super bipartisan. This is the whole, Iowa is at the center of the Iowa- Like the whole biofuels debacle. No, that's a completely bipartisan I mean, issue. I, look, I wouldn't look, say look it's at, bipartisan. But, well, okay, here's this. There's only one party that says you should restrict refinery capacity for oil and gas and wants to expand biofuel, okay? So Fair. I'm There's not saying that. Uh, all, all I'm just saying is it's important because here's the, it's just really interesting because this is this always comes up because there's a look like you know I come from the environmental movement. There's been a serious debate about the actual like environmental effectiveness of our biofuels policy, and a huge reason why we've always had this preference towards that approach has been the fact that Iowa is the first like electoral state in the country. So because of the fact that there's core in those different bits, like that's this has generally been a really bipartisan part. So plenty of things we could dunk on Democrats for. This is genuinely. They're getting there for different reasons, maybe, but this is genuinely a bipartisan issue. So I, what I'm objecting to is restricting refinery capacity and then converting it, the existing stock, to biofuel. That is a democratic position, uh, empirically. So I'll let it go. that's what I'm yes. saying. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think that's a problem. So anyway, oh, fertilizer too. You know, these are all, mining is another one, you know, in terms of, do you have any idea how much rare earth minerals are sitting in Russia and that we were all just taking advantage of, or that the Chinese have just been buying. Like right now, the current Biden cope is just go buy an electric car if you're wealthy enough. Okay, that's really awesome. I, I by the way, I love electric cars. I think they're awesome. I think they're the future. We literally do not have the supply chain, um, ev not even within our borders, within our allies in order to buy enough materials to convert, let's say even like 20% of US auto stock over to electric cars. That's why they're so expensive. So beyond even the chips, like the stuff that actually goes into the batteries, we are going to have to reckon with all of this. And ESG has basically made it so that we have divested ourselves or have moved capital away from investment in these strategically important areas. And because we're not Russia or China, we don't have state-backed industries to just invest in things 
on our national interest behalf, we rely on the private sector. Sometimes that works out from an innovation perspective. And in this one, it's left us incredibly vulnerable. Yeah. And I think this speaks to the reason why Peter's book is such a great fit for the realignment, because everything you're talking about, even when I'm referencing the bipartisan biofuels debacle, like that's very 2006 politics. Oh, it's very 2008 oh. politics. That I was actually thinking back to, I still have my time magazines from high school under my bed back in Oregon. And like, literally like the, the reason why I was thinking about this is there was a cover photo about the biofuels debacle, um, which I, which There's I always a just West noticed. Wing episode about <laughs> ethanol. That's how yeah, you see, know that, how long the shit's that, been going. That's, that, that's what I was referring to, right? So yeah. what's interesting right now though, is that this geopolitical geoeconomic shift is just so big that it's going to force everyone to essentially like reevaluate if they want to have successful policies. So to your point, and this is why uh, I was I was smiling, people who aren't watching this on YouTube won't see that, when you were saying, well, I'm not confident that our politicians will do it, but the underlying dynamic will be there. So I think the thing that's just interesting here is that the rhetoric for the past 30 years has very much been about like globalization, it sucks. And it does suck in many like pretty straightforward ways that we could insert all the obvious post-2016 forgotten America takes, all the very obvious like the WTO was a bad trade deal of China takes, like everyone's heard that a million different times. But what's going to change our politics here and actually represent a realignment is you're actually going to have folks struggling to reconstitute the benefits of globalization in a way that there wasn't something there. Like It's kind of funny, Sagar, like the way you're talking about these issues, especially like on Twitter and your more like aggressive breaking point sets, like your critique seems to basically come down to the, the fact that they're let the Biden administration is letting this world of kind of bounty slip away. I know it's not quite the way that you would aggressively put it, but there's just like, it's a new dynamic. That wasn't the way we were talking two or three years ago. Yeah. I mean, my ultimate critique on this though is not that we necessarily have to go secure mines. We're blessed with a extraordinarily rich natural resources in this country. We should secure them and then we should secure the industry required to make them useful to our average consumer. I really don't think that's controversial. I think that has actually been run on now by at least three presidents in a row. So let's see. No, wait. Bush. Obama, Trump, and Biden. So four, that's four presidents in a row that have basically all said some version of what I'm saying. Nobody just actually did it. And it's because it's a titanic problem. I mean, it's one of those things, like I just said, you know, Amer the American president just can't be like, I command thee to go and invest in oil or I command refinery to expand. That's not how it works. But our taxation system can incentivize or disincentivize capital markets to do certain things through regulatory maneuvers. And also the government has an extraordinary amount of power, which the Biden administration, many other administrations have basically refused to use as we have watched all of this capacity bleed. And it's because the reason why the, the justification was always made is, well, you can always buy oil from somebody else, or you can always, you know, if worse comes, well, we're in the worst and they're not doing it. So that tells you that there's still, even with the extraordinary political will, that the barrier to action is just so high amongst our elites. I honestly think, I don't even know what it is. I don't even know if they're afraid politically. I honestly think they're too afraid to try because that then they would have to acknowledge they might be able to do something about it and then they might fail. Okay, but you know the alternative is, is worse. Like right now, when the gas is $5 a gallon. Something I'm curious about is, what is your position you're 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 a China hawk, like you know, very open about that. 
you were very supportive of the China trade tariffs, China trade sanctions that the Biden administration has continued from the Trump administration. Well, that's an example like of like, away, to be fair, they're about well, to take. Well, away. that's yeah. what's on the that's on the solar ones. I'm no, talking no, about no, the, no. The, I'm talking about the, the other broader, tariffs. Yeah, the, 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 Biden they're, apparently. They're the, well, they were going to take away maybe up to like fifty percent, which I think is a disaster, yeah, a total disaster. To, anyway, but go ahead. To, so I guess, but here's what's here's I guess here's what I'm curious about though, right? So we'll get into Ukraine in, in a bit, but like when we're talking about Ukraine, when we're talking about the economic effect of our policies towards Russia, a lot of the rhetoric that you're using is directionally similar to what Democrats were trying to do when they were opposed to Trump's China tariffs back in 2018. Now, it didn't work because the inflation wasn't there, the economy was roaring. There were obviously very targeted parts of the economy where the tariffs caused a lot of hurt, but I think most consumers did not appreciably feel an effect. And probably part of what drove the Biden administration's uh, let's just say unpreparedness for the economic effects, where they thought this could be a similar type event. But like, how 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 does how do how do you the China sanctions look to you, given the economic state of the country? We're in oh, right that's now? easy. And I know people have tried to make this dunk before. The most neoliberal economists in this country who are desperate to end these tariffs, at best, they say that removing one hundred percent of them would maybe save Americans $750 per year. That is just not a lot of money. Especially if you consider this. Right now, actually, there's a lot of evidence that if you remove the tariffs on soybeans, for example, some of our agricultural food product, China would actually buy more and it would actually increase the price of food here in the United States. So there's not even any evidence that it would be deflationary in any way. The reason that I'm talking about Russia in the way that it's affecting us is because the vast majority of the inflation that people are experiencing in their lives is not just exacerbated, dramatically exacerbated by the sanctions, not just American sanctions, but the Western response to the Ukraine crisis. If Americans were losing several thousand dollars a year, which is currently the iteration in food and gas individually, this is per household, then yeah, I would have a totally different take whenever it came to the China tariffs, or I would be advocating for some massive changes in the US economy in order to grapple with that. Can I push you on this real quick? Because this this, this brought up, because it was interesting, because on Zachary Carabell's episode, he, Mm -hmm. he brought this point up in like really good faith, which is that Look, he's a China dove. That's kind of his whole thing. He's very open about it. His pushback against China hawks is that his position is, so I'd like you to respond to it. If the case for decoupling our economy from China is as serious as you all say it is, and I assume you guys are serious about it, if you think that the threat of integration is so high, shouldn't we basically be willing to pay any price to basically cut ourselves off from Interesting. Well, also, here's the other thing. This is a false choice because I'm not saying that you should just have tariffs. I think that that should be paired with dramatic investments in order to make sure that the American consumer does not get hurt. The Biden policy on Ukraine, and this is just basic, is we're going to sanction the fuck out of Russia. That is going to throw the energy and food markets into chaos 50 million some odd people may starve. Americans and Westerners are all paying a shit ton for gas, and we're not going to do a fucking thing about it. So given the fact that they have told us 
that they are incompetent and refuse to try anything on the supply side in order to mitigate this, then sanctions are the only policy that we have left to grasp for. It's clear as day to me the Biden administration at this point will not do what needs to be done in order to lower the price of gas on supply. It's just not going to happen. Also, here's the other thing about the China tariffs. That actually went through a much more rigorous process. We had a literal debate here. There actually has now been in place now for five years. So we actually have you know, changes in industry and more in order to make sure that we have the ability to deal with that. None of that is happening with uh, Russia and uh, with Russia, especially on oil. The oil markets are worse today. There's no plan. There's no moving forward. There's just Karine Jean-Pierre telling gas companies to be patriots. So, I mean, look, I wouldn't be using this rhetoric if the Biden administration, I'd be fine with it. If the Biden administration had done all these things that I'd be asking for and gas was like $3 or so a gallon, I'd be like, okay, fine, you know, whatever. We don't have to talk about the Russia sanctions in the way that they are. But it is clear to me that Western policymakers, and I'm including the entire West here, are not capable of delivering on that. So the Russia sanctions are the only policy. Yeah, it's it's interesting to close the segment of. Oh, on, also, uh, just wait. Peter, yeah, uh, the strategic benefit to it. I'll we'll talk about this, but I don't think it's worth it. I mean, we're not we're supposed to pay five dollars a gallon to ensure the integrity of the Dunbas. Sorry, not worth it. I think the thing that's interesting to me here, and this is what I'll close on this segment with, is I think the thing that Peter undercounts, like you said, he's very prone to like making big statements, is he undercounts the ability of the political system to respond to new incentives. So this brings to mind like the segment, remember the segment when we were talking about the Navy, he was saying, oh, the US is going to stop having its Navy patrol the sea lanes. Our allies are going to do likewise. So then you're going to see a situation where supply chains get even worse and worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. I don't think that's how politics work. I, I think that especially is something like, like once again, like what did we do the second that you had very like a huge, huge job for the U.S. Navy right now is keeping Somali pirates away from preventing like Middle Eastern oil from like serving the global commons. So my point is, if if what he's describing comes to pass, which is the U.S. pulls back at a geopolitical level, we then see basically the entire global trading system collapse because no one's protecting that. And then therefore our lives get much worse. The reason why I actually don't agree with that is that would just create an incentive for our political system to like put more money into the Navy. That's, that's all I'm saying. Like, right, right. I mean, Marshall, look, you're living proof right in front of you that that's not happening. Like no, 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 not gas. I'm talking about, I'm not talking about gas. I'm saying, let me just be more, be more. But it's a similar one. What, what? No, because I oh, good, good. Gas is complicated because let's get real for a second. It's like not that like you said, Matt. No, like, no, but no, but like you said, no, dude. Look, we're not energy experts. You and I both know that gas is a little more complicated than I think the story that we're summarizing as generalist for people. My point is with his claim. His claim is the U.S. has X number of naval ships. That is not enough to provide for the global commons. Over time, our allies will also not provide for the global commons. That will create economic chaos that hurts everybody. And then he basically treats that as like a static timeline that just happens. My point is what makes the Navy actually quite a bit like simpler than resolving a gas issue is, oh, wait, like let's just commission another destroyer. That is all I am saying. If what yeah, he, but- if, 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 yeah. Here's the thing. Yeah, you know this too. Defense supply, this shit takes 10 years, maybe 20 in order to get a new. I mean, 
look, I'm not a Navy expert. The Zumwalt class or whatever took like 15 years, colossal failure. We didn't have a proper supply chain for it. So the impetus for the defense, and by the way, the defense industrial base barely exists. The people that we would need in order to build these ships in Europe, it's not all even all here like it used to be. We don't have as much high of a shipping building capacity. So I don't think he's wrong. Also, uh, they would pass one appropriation and then sequestration or some bullshit shutdown would happen and they wouldn't be able to fund it. And then the project would have delayed by a year. And then they have to do like environmental impact. I'm just saying, I, I think he actually, I don't think you significantly underestimate how difficult it would be in order to actually do that. Yeah, but the, I think I, I guess I guess the difference here is basically anything anything that we're talking about at this stage of American society is going to going to be difficult and I just don't see a world where his aggressive predictions because once again he's making aggressive predictions because the US is providing naval security right now. We should have asked him what his actual timeline was to be fair. Because there, there's no point in the next like three years where the U.S. just says, "All right, we're spending too much money on the Navy. We're going to pull our ship, all of our ships back." Mm-hmm. What he is describing, if like, thank, I'm glad you. This was the perfect pushback. Thank you. Because what I'm realizing here is that if he's talking about a 20 year timeline, that's one thing. If he's saying like this is instantaneous, a it's not instantaneous, but b if it's 10, 20 years, and I think that will be able to be something that can be resolved. Like that will just be like a 10, 20 year project. I, I, all I'm just saying is that I think it's possible to your pushback that we could overstate our systems or they, well, this is good. I think you are correct that it's very easy for people like me who are more optimistic by nature to overstate the ability of politicians to respond to issues and incentives correctly. I think because Peter overstates things, he is just completely removing the fact that things happening creates incentives. I think the uh, issue is, is that I'm not just pessimistic about the Congress. I am literally pessimistic about the United States' ability to do these things. Like we do not, we are a purchasing house. We are not good at building things. And especially these intricate machines, like what you're talking, I mean, Boeing can't even build a plane that flies properly. Like that that's a serious problem. I mean, that one of something I always try to emphasize with the military industrial compacts is that they're not even particularly good at what they do. And actually, that's why I think people should really go and study SpaceX, because if you and you understand how bloated, inefficient, uninnovative and awful, I think it's called like United Technologies or whatever the joint uh, house was that was launching satellites pre SpaceX is. Imagine that, but for every single other industry, that's not space. That is what the destroyer looks like. That's what our current F-35 program looks like. The Zumwalt class looks like. I am so pessimistic, not just about uh, American politicians to respond, but for American industry to actually even have the capacity to do this. And this relates up to the stack of what we were talking about earlier, which is ESG, gov- ESG investments, governance, financialization, shareholderism, and so much more. This is a 40-year project, which has hollowed out our ability to do this. At the time when we were capable of doing this, which was the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s, none of the structural problems in hollowing out that I just described even existed. That's the issue. We haven't actually had to do anything like this in a long time. I think it's really interesting, and this is good timing because uh... – we're having Catherine Boyle from A16Z who leads the American Dynamism um, 
fund at A16Z on next week. So we're going to basically going to read her, your statement, like mm-hmm. pretty much, I'm actually not kidding. I'm probably just going to say, Catherine, respond to Sagar's framing on this one. Cause I think that's, I think that's really the, the bare case for this, but uh, look, you're a history buff. You know, we, we could see the books behind you. Um, I, I've lost my books in the move. So I, I feel much less powerful than you are right now, but look, 20s, 30s, you can make the same entire case with the United States. I, I, I guess the thing that I, I think that the thing that I think the thing that I will there's this guy. Let me put it more eloquently. There's this guy named uh, Joel Kotkin. He's a um, I like Joel Kotkin. Yeah, Joel Kotkin. He's a he's a he's a demographer. He's an urbanist. He wrote this book um, called The Next Hundred Million in 2010. I read it right after I graduated from high school. Uh, it's a really good book. I really recommend people read it. Um, it's basically about like what happens when America goes from a country of 300 million at the time to 400 million by 2050. We're kind of ahead of that timeline there, but that's the broad framing. And he talks in the first chapter about this like Japanese word. I'm totally going to butcher this, but it's a uh, sokoji kura or something like that. Mm, and it, 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 what it roughly translates to, God, that throat's an orientalist. Um, what that basically Whatever. translates to, yeah, right. It's just funny. Um, what that uh, translates to is like renewal, basically like the ability to like self-renew. And he used that to basically describe what he thinks the United States is, which is like numerous times in our history, times that were obviously worse than they were today, whether it's like the seventies and stagflation. Um, you know, yes, it's true that, you know, gas is terrible right now, but it's not 1973 where we literally don't even have oil at the gas stations. So there, there, there've been, there had always been points when the situation has been worse in our history, like the great depression, civil war, um, all sort of different points on any topic you can imagine, but every time the U.S. has had the ability to just like regenerate itself um, and work through these problems. And my basic approach to politics, we had a question in our supercast, like what's driving your approach to politics? My basic approach is like, you know what? I'm just going to consistently gamble on that being true. I think you're right to push me on the timeline, but I just cannot be convinced that that still does not exist anymore. I don't disagree with you. My problem is that in every instance that you just noted, it has to get so bad before it gets better. And that takes a long time. I mean, uh, I don't know, somewhere up here, battle cry of freedom. Civil war was a slow burn of like 25 years, man. Uh, You know, in terms of, it's interesting because I think about the same thing. I'm not saying we don't have the capacity. I'm just saying that the institutions themselves have to collapse to the ground and face actual existential ruin for anything to change. And I don't really see that happening anytime soon. Can Uh, you give us the Sagar and Jetty nightmares? Because like, what's funny is as people who watched the first episode of 2022, you hate people who talk about like the coming civil war. Um, You were not very happy that episode. So you're not claiming there's going to be a civil war. Um, likely. What though is your like nightmare, everything gets bad scenario from your perspective then that oh, could I mean, cause a renewal? Yeah. I mean, I think the, I don't know, I guess in terms of a natural disaster, like a solar flare, uh, like which wipes out the grid, uh, in terms of geopolitics, probably a successful Chinese invasion of Taiwan, or maybe not even that, maybe China closing the Straits of Malacca and just actually stopping 40% of global trade. I think it would take something like that. I mean, what you're seeing right now is nothing, nothing. I mean, yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, people are going to starve. People are going to be hosed. We're probably going to go into a recession, but let's be honest. I mean, it's not great depression. Like it's not. And if anything, I feel like we've almost become too good at mitigating things to 
to make them like really bad, but not so bad. And that by doing that, we almost, I'm almost making like a libertarian case for creative destruction. But I mean, there's something to be said. Like, you know, it's like we have this look like, for example, do you think that the coming recession, we're almost technically in a recession. So I think I could say, I personally think we're going to recession. Do you think that the coming recession will fundamentally reset the American economy? I think the answer is no. You know why? Because we just had a recession in 2008 and it didn't. So like that, that was not the case in 189, whatever the panic of 1890 or the great depression of 1933. Like we have just enough to make sure that we're not going to get destroyed, but we don't have enough social strife or anything. People thought that was going to be Trump. I'm like, no, man, it has to get so much worse. I mean, if you read about the 1970s, you had a slow burn of chaos from Kennedy's assassination to 1979. That's like 16 years. Like That's how long this shit takes in order to actually have Reagan kind of come out of that. And then even if you want to consider Reaganism and the, you know, whatever it wrought on our economy, that took like 35 years to have a slight grappling with it at the Democratic, small d Democratic level, whenever Trump was elected in 2016. So whatever comes next, it's going to take a long time. That's really strong pushback. I think what I'll just close on then is, I wonder though, and this is where we should talk to more historians because this is a question that comes up. Are we just ignoring all the times that our society was able to course correct? It's like it's like an availability bias, right? Because we're able mm -hmm. to say like, well, the only time we change anything is when you get the depths of Vietnam, when you get you know MLK, JFK, RFK getting killed in you know the same five year period, when you get the Great Depression, when you get the Civil War. We're obviously going to focus on those examples because they're the case where you know. Um, something went really bad, but there are going to be all these different instances where politicians and the system could say, "Hey, like this thing is not great right now. Let's avoid it." I'm, I'm bringing this up because this I did this episode with well, this what guy would they say? Get, what, what example what, would they give? Well, this is why I don't, I don't know. Like this is where us just being like audiobook aficionados like puts us to our limits. The reason why I'm just bringing this up is like Christopher Blattman, who's this uh, scholar at U Chicago who studies war and peace. I had him on in May. He brought up this like really. He, you say it out loud and it seems like really obvious, but he was like, look, at a baseline level, we have to assume that like war actually is like an aberration. Um, and we shouldn't just assume that war is always, always, always happening. Cause usually the question that he's interested in is like, for example, like World War, think of the story of World War One. World War One happens in the Balkans. You have like the Austro-Hungarian heir, you know, from Duke Fer Franz Ferdinand get killed. And like, that's what happens. His point though is, well, actually, there were hundreds, if not thousands, of incidents in the Balkans that pushed on like the exact same tensions and dynamics. There were monarchs and heirs. Mm -hmm. They were killed all throughout by anarchists, actually, like mm -hmm. all throughout that 50-year period after the Civil War. There was the, you know, like 1848 revolutions across Europe. Why in those 999 um, instances did Europe not just turn into like a global conflagration? And then why did it happen in that specific instance? So all I'm saying is I can't think of the example because once again, not a historian, but I'm sure if we look at those three big examples you gave, the Civil War, the Great Depression, New Deal, um, and then let's say um, insert like the, 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 the post-civil uh, rights era, post-Vietnam period, there are going to be 997 other examples of there being problems in this country that are really deep. 
yet we were able to avoid them without things blowing up. Yeah, but here would be my pushback to him. Uh, yeah, it didn't break out in 188 whenever the Serbian king was killed, but that's part of the reason it did break out in 1914, which is that there's a reason that Bismarck said if war breaks out, it'll come out of the damn Balkans. And it was because Balkan policy had been a source of tension then. And look, this is getting deep, so everybody get ready. Uh, <laughs> there's a reason also that the Kaiser and Germany and the empire at that time did not feel confident enough to even insert itself on the global stage to ensure that they would come to Austro-Hungaria's defense. And that had to do with their naval production. And that itself was also a 40-year timeline. So I actually would push back on that massively and just say that if you do look at the, I mean, here's the thing. He would then point to what he would say is that the Compromise of 1850 is an example of us working it out. Well, what do we all know about the Compromise of 1850? It kicked the can down the road for the Civil War. There's a good case to be made for the Compromise of 1850. It allowed the North to industrialize for another 11 years and actually ensured that we, and I'm, I'm, yeah, I'll just say we, that we were going to win the Civil War. Because if war had broken out in 1850, that's actually not the case whatsoever. Uh, also, we had terrible presidents and leaders. You know, At the time, we had to force the slavery question through the Dred Scott decision, and the public became overwhelmingly more abolitionist in those 11 years. But the structural factors which are going to lead to the Civil War were ever-present, and the little Band-Aids that they were to put on them, I wouldn't call that a solution. I mean, same in terms of... Um, the 1970s, okay, so like, let's go through the 1960s. So Kennedy gets killed, and everybody's like, oh my God, this is horrible. So they have an elect Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson passes the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, Medicare, Social Security, fundamentally transforms American society. At the same time, he makes a catastrophic decision in order to escalate troops dramatically in Vietnam. It takes five years for Americans to really kind of grapple with what the hell that means. Johnson says, okay, I'm not going to run. Then Nixon comes in. Detente pursues this wind-down policy um, in Vietnam, but the underlying social tension there is still dramatic, burns through the public. Every once in a while, it flares up, it flares down, but the overwhelming tension. Finally, you know, we go through the chaos of Watergate, Ford, and then we have Nixon, uh, Carter. I'm very familiar with this time because I'm reading Jimmy Carter's biography right now. But uh, and then we elect Carter. We're like, oh my God, oh, uh, an outsider. He's going to settle. He's a liberal. He's such a nice guy. It's over. And then it gets way worse. It's like one of those things where we may think that we're looking at it and we've solved these things as solutions. But like history is a grand way of saying that sometimes these questions, I mean, questions become inevitable eventually. I think that globalization, the ones I'm talking about, actually are inevitable questions. But I'm not naive enough to think it's going to happen today because I, you know, we see this movie play out. Our political system is built in order to secure compromise at the most basic level. And I think that's great sometimes. Um, but also, it can really move things, specifically structural things like this, which, let's, frankly, let's be honest, fascists and dictatorships don't have to worry about, which is why they're agile. You know, they have their own constraints, obviously, but they don't have to uh, abide by the same thing. I'm not saying I would bet against America. I think we absolutely have the capacity to do these things, but it would have to dramatically change. It would have to move through exactly that cycle. Like, I think Trump yeah. getting reelected is the perfect corollary to that cycle. I'm like, yeah, that's how it should work. It's like, oh, you think you're over? Nope, he's back. And it takes another... That means we'll have lived 12 years in the Trump era. Think about that. That's a long yeah, time. And, uh, <laughs> like, to your point about dictatorships, right, what comes to mind is that, and this is within our framework, 
dictatorships can be more agile, but it also seems like dictatorships always can, by their nature, make more like fatal errors in a way that democracies yeah. aren't going to. They're much to. more at risk of making a fatal error. That's a good point, right? That's why yeah, they often like, you know, fail. So they can be great and then they can also fail dramatically. Yeah. You're, uh, you know, <laughs> Italy and you think it's a good idea to declare war on yeah. France and the United States for literally no good reason. Yeah, for no reason. Um, <laughs> if, you're, if you're Hitler, you decide that you're going to take Russia um, for... Eh, I'm reading a book on this, like kind of complicated reasons. Um, you should check out Stalin's War. It's in mm-hmm. our, um, it's in our, it's in, it's in our that. shared Audible. And basically, like book. his point is essentially that, like, <laughs> it's really weird um, in that his a takeaway I'm getting is that, like, oh no, like Stalin was basically preparing to go to war against Hitler too. So, like Hitler's oh, argument that. that, so you know, there's, there's significant document, and this is like the the Russians. The Russians are in an awkward position with this, right? Because the whole Russian great patriotic war story is like, we were, you know, just like the good old Soviets minding our own business. And then like Hitler invaded us. Like that's much harder to argue once you combine the fact that they were effectively in an alliance for two years, but also that they were planning their own conquest of, of Eastern and Central Europe. So it's it's kind of like complicated, but you know, I'll just close. The, I keep saying I'm going to close this segment. I'm Guys, I'm still working on doing this format. I will actually close this segment with a quick joke um, that comes to mind when you saying we were going to get deep here. Um, I was hanging out um, in Austin where I'm based now, and I was at a pool i was at a pool party and someone asked me like what i was reading and i'm reading this book about like austria hungary in uh 1914 how it mm-hmm. decided how like it was totally not ready to go to war in world war one and the person who i'd met had never heard of austria hungary before because they're just like not like they're not political like they're not hist- they're not they're just like this person works in tech yeah, um so i so i was in the weird position of having to explain what austria hungary was and his response was so funny because he goes Wait a second. Like Austria, he's been to Europe a lot. He goes, Austria, Hungary, they they share nothing in common. Like, why would that possibly be a country? And I'm like, that's the that's the whole. It was just funny to have someone like talk out 80 years of history. I'm like, yeah, man, that's basically the conclusion that you Let know. Let me speak mixing- out on their behalf, though. I think Austria Hungary was a very modern empire. I think it actually was pretty cool. Uh it honestly it's was not a, it's not that it's it was not very that it ethnically uh heterogeneous. They had the dual monarchy. They didn't have a terrible parliamentary system. They had a decent amount of uh, of like of kind of racial tolerance, like within the empire, even religious tolerance. A lot of Muslims. Uh, I don't know. I think it was a cool empire. So here's the problem. Um, I agree because I think the Austro-Hungarian Empire, hey, really cool name, um, cool country. The whole point of the book, though, is that everything you just said basically leads to that World War II defeat. Because once again, you're like, yeah, yeah it's like right, a diverse right. country. Yeah. That's why they were colonizing right. the Balkans. Right. Um, why was the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, their army, such a disaster? Because the the Hungarian part of the monarchy, their parliament, which is, it's cool, but there was a dual parliament. Mm-hmm. Their parliament would pass laws saying that like Hungarian Hungarians from our corner of the empire will not be like taught in German. So the officer corps was mixed up. It was, it's kind of funny. So uh, rabbit hole to end all rabbit holes. Okay. So now we're going to pivot um, in this uh, part of the show to big newsy segments. Um, really want to get your thoughts on this one because this is very complicated. Lots of talk this week about whether or not Joe Biden should run again due to age issues. Obviously, this has been an undercurrent of, not just an undercurrent, this has been a very explicit point that the right's been making for basically since you know November 6th. However, now you have the New York Times um, doing significant reporting on this, New York Magazine's writing about this, The Atlantic, Mark Labowitz, who you and I really like, he just did a really good, really good piece 
making the case for why he doesn't think Joe Biden should run again. So for those of our listeners that aren't like part of like this like inside beltway baseball, the center left has basically and by the center left, because I hate people get mad when I say that, what I basically mean is like the Acela Corridor Democratic Party political establishment and the people who like they market and sell their things to has now basically started to signal, okay, after the midterms, Joe Biden, you need to not run again. Um, so that's the, that's what, that's what, that's, that's what's changed. So Sagar, I want to know what, what your thoughts are. I mean, I do think he's too old to be president. I, I actually just do. If Biden, I mean, look, Biden, like Leibovich says, would be 82 years old the day that he is sworn into his second term. I'm sorry. I barely trust an 82 year old behind the wheel. Honestly, I think they should have yearly driver's tests once you pass like 75. Um, go look at the car accident data, people. If you want to ask me why, listen, like they even quote people who say, quote, he just seems old. That's a direct quote from a senior from, administration yeah. official to Mark Leibovich. These people are shit talking their boss in this way. You know why? Because it's obvious. But uh, if I were the Democrats, no, Biden has to run again. He's the strongest candidate that they Fascinating. have. I mean, I have the tautology, which is like. Any generic Republican could beat Biden easily. However, no generic Republican can beat Donald Trump. And Joe Biden is the only Democrat who can beat Donald Trump. I don't think that's actually a tautology, but whatever. Um, <laughs> so he has to run. If it's Trump, which is going to be Trump, barring Black Swan event, it has to be Biden. He's the only person who could possibly make He's the only person who could have beaten Donald Trump in 2020. And he's the only person who could beat Donald Trump in 2024. He's the only person who is willing to both push against the identitarian wing of his party while also not seeming insane and playing a you know semi-decent coalition. I mean, look, Ilhan Omar said she would support Joe Biden if he ran again in 2024. So did Bernie Sanders. AOC apparently refused to say it, but I think she was probably just being inarticulate whenever she made that comment. So the fact that the leaders of the left are like, yeah, I'll support him in 2024, everybody knows. Everybody gets it. You cannot primary Biden if Trump is running again, just in terms of how this yeah. would actually play out in right. the party. You could right. do it if Ron DeSantis is the president, if Jeb Bush is the well, president. If, if, if Ron DeSantis yeah. is the uh, But, but, but you, you get what I'm saying. Like in terms of just like yeah. the, the dynamics there, like you actually just as a politician, especially a younger politician who wants to have a future, you cannot do that kamikaze attack. Mm -hmm. Like the only reason why Ted Kennedy had a future after he primaried Jimmy Carter when Reagan was running against him was because of the Kennedy legacy. That's the only reason that why that, that still works. Also, Reagan him. wasn't perceived as the existential threat that uh, Trump is. You know what I'm saying? No, like Reagan yeah, was, you're, you're, you're right. Reagan yeah. was not, people, people were fed up with Carter, but they weren't like, they weren't, the Democratic Party at the time, there was, look, the Democratic Party in 1979 was a fucking mess. So, so people should also understand, it's not even close, like, if you think it's bad now, like, oh man, like, Carter is so bad. <laughs> we don't, we actually don't talk. It's funny. What, uh, what, what book are you, you, you mentioned this book. His what, very what book best, are you uh, Jonathan Alter. It's funny too, because Alter does his best to be like, no, he's a good guy. I'm reading this. I'm like, man, this guy should never set foot in the Oval Office. He's such a terrible character to be president. Nice guy. I respect him a lot. Very driven in his personal life, physically fit, uh, successful businessman, very smart, you know, nuclear engineer. But all of those things do not make you a good president. <laughs> That's, That's just, the, just so un, unfit for the moment, like a, almost Franklin Pierce level of ineptitude, which is sad. 
I, th- I think what all yeah, he's lucky that he didn't have a Franklin Pierce style crisis. Um, mm-hmm. I think what I, I think the thing that's hard for me to really think about. I think you I think you summed up the dynamic in a really in a really helpful way. What I here's my basic take. My take is whenever they write, if Trump if Trump runs again in 2024 and he beats Biden, the way that they will tell this Trump era, because I think you're, to- I, I love, I love your, you should probably start coining that. Just this thinking of this era as like the 12 years of Trump, like it's going to be like 13, 14, right? If you add in like, actually, mm-hmm. you know what the Trump era is? The Trump era is when, uh, President Obama calls him out at the White House correspondence dinner. Well, you could go even earlier. You could say 2011. Yeah, you could say yeah, like that's 2011. Burst, burst oh, man, jeez, really Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> so this period, right? So this this, yeah. this period, this era of Trump, like whatever, that's the way of, he's the biggest personality. He's really how we should, I think, define this. The, 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 the key thing, though, that, that, that's, so, that's so difficult there is, I think a historian is going to look at this era and say to themselves, the biggest mistake made by Democrats was making Kamala Harris the vice president. I completely agree with that. That was the, because let's get at a core level here. Here's what is happening here. If Joe Biden had selected a vice president who he had a strong relationship with, because they do not have a strong relationship, like this was, I'm basically quoting the Daily here, the New York Times, but it was really awkward when Kamala came down with, or the vice, you know, Madam Vice President, um, we're not on first same basis on a couple of different levels. When you know, when when she came down with COVID, because she had to be like, oh, there's no danger that I've communicated this to the president because we haven't seen each other in a very, very, very long time. Yeah, I know. So it exposed, and by making clear that Biden was safe, it exposed the real distance between the two of them. But two, like her poll numbers are worse than him. If they selected an effective VP. The situation right now would be so much easier. Yeah, but here's the problem. Who would they actually pick? Because the, here's the deal. Amy Klobuchar, this is the issue. Amy's great. And Amy's it, Amy's great. It doesn't matter. We it all, doesn't Amy matter. and I are on first name basis. I will say Amy. Here's the thing. I bought she her book. Still That's the thing. She still is not as talented as Biden. She does not have, by, for example, we were reading uh, This Will Not Pass about Biden. Amy is not going to include the Thomas Jefferson quotes in her speech. And for context give the, for people, give, give the example, uh, Biden's younger staff literally did not want him to include Thomas Jefferson quotes in his speeches because Thomas Jefferson is a quote unquote racist. Look, obviously Jefferson owned slaves, you know, quasi by modern standards, he's by modern standards. He's obviously like a racist, but like, it's yeah, insane like, that no shit. It's, in, okay? it's, it's in, like, and once again, but this, and this is why like people, some but of Amy's not going to do that. This is, I just want to make this point. No Democrat on the scene today can do that. Not one on the national stage. Amy Caves, Pete Caves. Look at Pete's the way that he made Even Bernie. Sorry, Bernie people. You guys know it. You know, he got captured by the woke bullshit too. So there is not one, one national Democrat. Gretchen Whitmer would have caved too. N- none. Maybe Eric Adams. Like, and he's post this. So it would not actually even. Well, uh, well but, he, but here's the yeah. thing though, Sagar. And this is what comes to Mark Leibowitz's case. His point is Joe Biden was the only Democrat who could win in 2020. He likely, yeah. whether he'd say it or not, he has a book coming out. So hopefully we could book him to talk about this. He probably agrees with every single thing you just said. But what I think he would also say, and what I would say is, well, 2024 is not going to come down to issues of racial justice. 
in the way that summer 2020 did. Cause once so again, because, because, because once again, this, and this, this, once again, people, people get, people get surprised when you and I kind of give these Biden defenses, because like, we're just, I think we're just so read into these types of stories that we understand, like we understand this, like the bit of his personality during summer of 2020, right? Like the height of like what it was very, very obvious for a, I'm not just trying to dunk on people, but like, I get it. Like if you're, if you are a 24 year old democratic party, Joe Biden staffer, you're probably thinking, this is just going to cause too much trouble. It's going to cause, like, you, you can put on your comms pants. I, I know, look, I know you're rolling your eyes, but like, I get where they're coming from. Joe Biden is able to say, no. No. And did, did, did the election come down to him, including that speech? No. But, and this is what metapolitics is all about the victory came down to the fact that Americans tangentially or enough people directionally thought he was that type of person well, who okay. would still include, include Jefferson. I got to break this down. The Jefferson thing is a symptom, not a single issue. So for example, Biden is at least capable of saying, we need more oil and gas. Guess what? They're not capable of doing that. The reason that you, Jennifer Granholm, the, you know, energy secretary of the United States is telling people go buy an electric car and is also quote unquote urging, you know, Democrats. Here's the thing. The disease is so far in, you don't have a national Democrat capable today of saying, yeah, guys, we need just drill for oil and like, and taking the shit that's going to come with that from the sunrise movement, from all of the environmental nonprofit. That's the same, the same incident that makes you cave to Thomas Jefferson makes you overweight the constituencies of all of these left-wing groups relative to their actual political power. And I think that's a huge, huge problem. I mean, look, even Biden, on the issues where he's not triangulated, he falls for this shit all the time. Avoid the culture war on this show, but Biden is about to uh, issue an executive order challenging Texas and Florida's challenge to trans healthcare. Yeah, guess what uh, the American people are like broadly in support of, both the what Texas and Florida are doing. You don't have to support that. If you don't want to, you can say it's wrong. I don't care. Whatever. I'm telling you what actual polling data says. Even Biden is not capable of triangulating on that. And guess what? That sure as hell means that Gretchen Whitmer and, uh, you know, who is that attorney general in Michigan just yesterday? He was like, we should have drag shows in every suit. This is the attorney general in a swing state of Michigan who said that we should have drag in every kid's school. Now, listen, you could say it's a moral panic. You can say whatever you want. You think that's fucking popular? Like, this is what I mean about being able to triangulate against this stuff pick the fights or not even pick fights, ignore the shit that you shouldn't be speaking out on and maybe just like hand wave away to uh, those types of coalitions. There's not a single national Democrat on the stage which is capable of doing any of that, not one. And so I don't think they have a chance in 2024, except if Trump runs again and if it's Joe Biden. So quick question um, to get to our last uh, few topics, uh, closing in on the, the hour. I'm curious though, you're doing a Clinton bio. You and I are very well read up on uh, Bill Clinton. Two of them kind of came from, I know Bill Clinton gave a big speech in 1988, but like operationally, he was like the backwater governor, no offense, Arkansas, Arkansan no listeners, offense, but he's Arkansas. like, you know, the, he's, sorry. <laughs> um, you know, they came from nowhere. So you keep saying there are no national Democrats who could throw this needle. Like, do you think it's possible that there's a Jared Polis in Colorado 
who comes out he of nowhere and does today. this dynamic. I had to go find that. Oh, no, no. He was talking about inflation. Never mind. Yeah, look, maybe, maybe. Um, to be fair, though, Clinton had been trying to run for president for like 10 years. He was a president of the RGA. He had that big speech at the DNC convention. He was on Johnny Carson. He was a semi-national figure. Like but neither I, was, but then Carter then. Carter, once again, Carter. Oh, this is good. The reason why Carter succeeds, we should have Jonathan Altor on the show. We had his daughter Charlotte on and she's a friend of the show and everything. But Carter succeeds because the dynamics of post-Watergate America were perfectly mm-hmm. suited to a peanut farmer, evangelical Christian, nuclear scientist, n- nuclear physicist, um, moral nuclear morality engineer, guy. Actually. Nuclear this engineer, actually. Nuclear engineer. Apparently this is precise. a big controversy in Carter world. He calls himself Ooh, tell a me nuclear more. physicist. But technically that is a... Uh, title that you only get from a PhD, and he would routinely Ooh. use that when actually his technical title is nuclear engineer. It's a long—I didn't know this. Carter likes to brag a little bit too much about his accomplishments. Uh, these are—I'm I'm giving <laughs> look, you guys vintage controversies from the nineteen once you once you lose uh, re-election to Ronald Reagan yeah. and are basically thought of as the worst president of your lifetime for a while. Yeah. Um, you're allowed to brag about your other accomplishments for a second. Um, okay, I want to get to two other two other topics. Um, so one, I want to I want to talk about gun the gun legislation um, mm. that came out this week, just because like we did an extended episode um, on the topic. So basically, the I, I guess I want to start with a quick mea culpa. Um, I'm pay, I'm I'm uh, sorry. I'm just trying to pull up the details, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So my mea culpa is. I basically, st- I, I think that it's easy to get very pessimistic in this current dynamic that you and I spent the first half of the show talking about. And in my pessimism, I just basically took it as a given that there is no compromise possible. Nothing could happen. Therefore, let's just jump to like assuming that's true. Whether or not you like the specifics of the bill, my just personal reaction to, oh shit, like they nominally have 10 Republican senators on board for the first time ever. And Kirsten Cinema is actually playing a big role in organizing that. I was like, wow, like that's an example of where I did a bad job as a political analyst. Like that's what I do for a living. I was just too caught in the like, huh, our system's broken. Let's take that as a given. Cause remember, like, yeah. think about what we were, no, but think about what we were saying. We, we, if you listened to what we said during that episode, whether or not you like these specific proposals, we said this was not possible. So uh, I think it's yeah, well, important. It still hasn't well, passed. And I think that's, look, but yeah, even, there's no but text. Even, like, yeah, but here's listen, the thing though. I mean, we'll see. I've seen this movie before. I've seen a lot of agreements. Not on this issue. Not on Mitch McConnell endorsing it. Like get into the specifics because I think that's where it gets complicated. Yeah, so the All specifics, I'm saying is, yeah, it, I think it's important. Well, that, okay. I'll tell you yeah. what I underestimated. I underestimated the Democrats to actually compromise because all of the stuff within the bill is not something that I ever thought that they would have given any ground on. Everybody's pointing to the Republicans. No, the Republican position has always been pretty consistent. They're like, we're not nationally mandating a goddamn thing. The bill, you know, it doesn't raise the age from 18 to 21. It just includes expanded background checks into like juvenile records for people. Whenever they, It doesn't have a national red flag law. It provides funding to states if they want to have a red flag law. It doesn't actually- Can you explain what really a red flag law is? Because this well, is the controversial depends. part. See, this is the problem though. It depends because state by state. Give the so broad, give the broadest. The idea is, is that if you are exhibiting red flag symptoms like you, uh, mental health, depression, that- 
threats, third party those things. can report you and that they, through a semi-adjudicated process through the court system, can take away your right to buy a gun for a set period of time. Um, it gets very complicated and very messy whenever it comes to actual implementation. Anyway, so the most controversial part of the bill is that it provides funding for states if they want to have a red flag law. But my general take has always been on these things. Look, I don't necessarily even support a red flag law, but if the feds aren't mandating it, I'm like, all right, whatever. You know, it, it, that's that's why I think that I did, did you, I mean, look, you had Chris Murphy on the floor of the Senate after Uvalde saying, enough of this bullshit, it's the guns. Like you had the Overton window expand to actually we do want to take away your AR-15. That was not the political condition, which I saw, given that the president was advocating for an AR-15 ban. The com uh, Harris was advocating for an AR-15 ban for those people to back down to their political constituents to actually cave towards essentially what is a funding bill <laughs> you know, for states if they want to. So to be honest, there has not been a lot of evidence currently that Democrats are willing to compromise at all on what I would classify as a social issue. And I mean, if I'm a left-wing activist, I'm furious about this bill, right? I'm literally furious. Like this is, I mean, essentially, this is just more of the same, which they said that whoa, they were not whoa, going whoa, to do. Whoa, whoa, No, that's, that's yeah, not, that's ahead. not, that's not, well, so Chris Murphy, he's very likable, by the way. Listen, he did a good 30-minute interview on The Daily. Um, and I think given your point about how he gave this very fiery speech on the Senate floor, like listening to him on the daily uh -huh. after he announced this bill, like he, look, he, you wouldn't disagree on like the process process here. So here's what he said. He said several things. He said, number one, he said, we do not include an AR-15 ban because the votes are not there. Um, and I think what was very productive is he didn't take the easy rhetorical way out. He didn't say... We didn't have, we didn't, we, we couldn't include an AR 15 ban because the evil NRA is preventing us from doing anything. He said the, the votes are not there. And it, and it should be just like that simple. Like the votes mm -hmm. are not there. There are not Republican senators who would vote on that issue. He also said, guess what? I don't think a national red flock system would even make any sense. He's like, cause think about it for a second. Like it's a, it's a court, it's a court thing. You couldn't like, you couldn't have people go into federal yeah, I, courts. I, listen, he, I agree with so you. Okay. That this, this is my point. Like he, this in the past. he, like, well, once again, fair, but all I'm saying is like the, the, the underlying process here. Um, and then, yeah. And then like, I think the red flag laws are going to be comp controversial when they're implemented. Um, obviously, but, and then also when it comes to the expanded background check on people under 21, I think that's completely fine. I think there's clearly a, I'm, I don't something have weird, something. Yeah, no, I, I have a problem But yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess here's, here's actually my take. Like, I genuinely think that, oh, man, I, sorry, I'm just like thinking, I'm trying to think out loud more on, in this type of segment. And I'm realizing you made a really interesting point, which I've never really thought of before, which is that like, Okay, here's the, here's the actual answer. So you know how you're, you were just saying they didn't give in to the left wing of their party on this issue, and that kind of surprised you. Do and you know the honest take here, do you know, do you know what the take uh, here is? The take here is like Senator Murphy was actually acting in good faith and wanted to do something. Do you kind of know what I mean? Like sure. it's, it's an area where it's I mean, it's, okay. it's an area where would you bet on that? <laughs> Washington, like, well, no, I, I well, yeah. I think I think after look, he was the congressman who represented, um, you know, the city in Connecticut where the shootings okay, happened. Sure, I mean, so, so, is so but, fucking but, Blumenthal, he's not doing anything. Yeah. Well, he wasn't the. I'm saying, but he was the. I'm right. saying he was the congressman for that yeah, district. Sure. 
So like he has a deep, like he has, you know, I don't know how much of this is PR, but like he has, you know, the numbers of like, you know, parents in his, mm-hmm. um, you know, in his, in his, in his, in his phone. So I think, I think for him, it's like on a different level. So I think, yeah, I, I think in this case, it was just really like, I think we, we underestimated, I think we underestimated the ability to actually find a compromise there. I do think though, something that you noted, we were arguing about this in our group chat. Um, what I would say, something you've convinced me of is that there could be all sorts of problems with red flag laws in terms of like implementation and the post-op, like they're like a very serious thing. AOC did that AOC thing where she's like super unproductive and like woke what areas, say, but, it's, it. but it raises, but it's kind of funny. She, let me put it this way. This is actually an intellectually interesting and a legitimate point to make. It's also like not a productive point to make given like if you believe the things you believe, she was pointing out, she's like, my worry with red flag laws is that they're going to be disproportionately implemented against persons of color. Um, do, do you see what I mean by like, that's definitely like a thing. No, that's it's like definitely almost certainly, just so definitely going to happen. That literally will happen. Yeah. Yeah. It, it literally will happen. My point is just that like, out of all the, do you get what I'm saying? Oh, like, sure. Out of all of the times, oh my God. Yeah, but someone saying like, was, oh yeah, I know what you're saying. She was like, well, I'm worried that juvenile laws will be used to keep arms away from people. I'm like, yeah, that's actually. Listen, I mean, you know, that's what crime data says. So like, <laughs> this yeah, is my. I you think you, you got to like, choose. Like, we, we we need a we need a recurring section where it's like Marshall's beef with AOC every week, and my beef with her yeah. this week is kind of like, look, AOC. There's a difference between like a smart point you could make in an academic graduate seminar and just like the underlying politics. And like, I don't understand why in any respect, like, by the way, like, you know what a Republican says to what she just said? I'm going to post it. You know, you see these over Twitter. There's all like, like, there's like a growing like black gun culture in this country where there, you know, there's lots of AR-15s. It's very much like this, like there's this tradition and going back to the Black Panthers of like self-defense, like all these different bits. Okay, when AOC supports an assault weapons ban, the the quickest thing you don't even have to be a boomer con to be like, wait, like here's this picture of like a black family. AOC, are you saying you're going to send the cops to like a black household Mm -hmm. to take away their gun? Like it's just sort of like I don't understand why this is a productive point to bring up in public discourse. Um, in terms of this sort of it, I don't, I actually don't know where that really goes from, 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 from the perspective. Well, there. I mean, I actually think she's made raising a good point, which is that there are actually a lot of unintended follow on effects, you know, for these things. I mean, I think black gun, I mean, some of the, one of the most prominent two A activists in the country is Colo and Noor, who's a black man. Um, there's a, there's a bunch of guys actually on Twitter and on YouTube, you know, specifically, I guess I would characterize it as like the black manosphere, which is a niche of the manosphere, which is very <laughs> pro gun. I think it's great. You know, I, I think that's good. Anyway, you know, it's interesting. Yeah. So look, I'll just I'll just close with what you like taught me in our argument, which was the danger with the red flag laws. Because look, like you are respect you are restricting someone's right to rights when you do this. The court hasn't overturned right, it. Yeah. The, the court hasn't overturned this, but so but you but you are you, just in the way that well, we this hasn't been challenged yet because they're pretty new. People forget that. Yeah, but well, look, the until, most expansive um, red flag laws, the ones like in Florida. Look, and, all, uh, I'm, I'm, look, all I'm saying is, all I'm saying is, until it happens, yeah. I'm going to say it's constitutional, it's legal, but it is putting pressure on someone's right, as we do in all these different respects. I'm convinced by you that we shouldn't have this be like a set it and forget it situation. We're just sort of like, okay, we passed the red flag law, and let's assume that everything that comes out of that law is fair and properly adjudicated in those bits. So I think that like 
the thing from our conversation on guns that was useful was this idea of like, hey, if you're going to operate in this sociocultural space, you have to understand that like a lack of social trust is near the top of everything. So as someone who has been converted to being an advocate of red flag law positions, I need to make sure actively policing my side of this issue that like, hey, like, which actually makes sure there's a proper rejudicatory you know, purpose. This is uh, a process. good point too, because in the agreement, they say red flag clause consistent with due process. And if I predict where ev- any of this could even fall apart, it actually will be on that. It will so, yeah, be on like the due pe- process. Uh, because so by people, the way, yeah. some of these states actually don't give you any real, I mean, it, look, New Mexico is a perfect example. New Mexico's barrier of proof on a red flag law is insanely low. Like, not consistent with a long-standing adjudicated, well-accepted practices of stripping somebody of their constitutional rights. Colorado apparently is a pretty good example. Their red flag law, they use the same standards for giving back rights and taking away rights as uh, whenever you take, whenever you like mentally commit somebody involuntarily. So the actual language on this is going to be, that's the brawl. And that's where all the legal fighting is going to happen too. Actually, quick thing though, I will push back on one thing. I think that that probably is too, the, the whole like, the whole, the standard should be the same as the standard of which it takes to like commit someone. I think that's actually almost certainly too high. I mean, you shared this CNN piece talking about the Florida law. Some of the examples of people who had their guns taken away was a case of someone saying, I'm going to go shoot a school mm-hmm. or someone took their, someone, and this is just like, it's kind of crazy that this happens. Like we've, you and I have lived in like urban, like urban, like upper middle class cities. So I don't think about this, but like apparently in Florida, there was this guy who's like a family member died. He took his gun, got on his porch and just started shooting. Yeah, that's wild. And it's like his, his rifle into the streets. And then yeah. they like, they took his gun. So my point See, is- it's tough though. That, that, I'm talking. saying that, I'm saying that, I'm quick though. That action does not constitute, you could not commit him for that duty. So that's, that's all I'm saying. I, if it's I were his hard. neighbor, I would, I would not say that the standard should be that high if my kid's riding around on a tricycle. I completely don't. I don't even disagree with you. What I think is just very hard is we don't literally don't operate criminal law that way, right? And this is kind of an aspect of that. We don't convict people for saying they're going to go and commit crimes. When they do, and that falls within an adjusted period of speech, then you can't, there's processes in place like restraining orders, uh, things like that, where some of these things can be adjudicated. But fundamentally, like we don't commit somebody to prison and strip them of a constitutional right until they do something. That's why attempted murder is not murder. It's attempted murder. That's why murder in the manslaughter is not murder in the second degree. That's why murder in the second degree is not murder in the first degree. Like the entire criminal justice system is based on what did you actually do? And I mean, even think about restraining order. You can't just go get a restraining order that's legitimately enforceable against someone unless you have a shit ton of proof. So look, I'm just saying like, you know, that we seem to put guns in a category of which you just can't. Like, look, people, well, I mean, it's in the constitution. We, 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 but we, we, well, A, take it to the Supreme okay. Court then. DC, okay, and fine. DC, no, but no, but no, 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 quick thing. We put guns, we're treating guns differently because guns kill people. Like, like, do you know, like in, in an era where there is a clear ep- – and once again, I'm not trying to – I'm not – I hate when people on the right say that people like me are being overly emotional when we say this. I'm, I'm saying this very clearly and calmly. There is clearly an epidemic of mass shootings in this country in the same way that there was an epidemic 
of hijacking in the 60s and 70s, and that you had other similar issues. The rate is increasing. The kill counts are going up. This is something that we should confront. That is not going to be confronted by taking everyone's guns away. There's going to be no national assault weapons ban. There's not going to be like a national, like huge database that could lead to the nightmare scenario. And you're telling, I agree with that. But like that dynamic of the epidemic is why we are putting guns in its own corner. And until the Supreme Court says differently, as they said in DC v. Heller, to your point about DC's assault, like gun ban, I'm going to treat it as something that's up for grabs. Yeah. I mean, I would just, I don't, here's the other issue. I'm just so distrustful. Even the word mass shooting, I get triggered. You know why? They just had a gang shootout in Philly where like four people got shot and people are calling that a mass shooting. And by the way, this is politicization also of the justice department because you have the government also trying to classify and determine these things as mass shootings. The vast majority of gun deaths in this country are suicide. Every single one of those is a tragedy. We should do everything that we possibly can in order to make sure that stops. The other vast majority of the gun deaths in this country are homicide between two individuals. Disproportionately occur between men, between 18 to 21 in an urban environment. And a lot of those cases, uh, actually there's no real data on this on how many of them use illegal guns or not, which tells me a lot about what those reporting ones are. How many laws would actually restrict that? So, look, I'm just telling you from an implementation perspective, I'm dramatically skeptical because I've seen the uh, language and all this stuff warped. At the end of the day, it's a constitutional right. And you just have to, you have to accept that. Look, I mean, it'd be nice to live in minority report, but we don't. Wait, quick question. Like, you're saying people aren't accepting that. People, people are accepting that. Like, they're, 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 they're like, Yes, there's oh. overheated rhetoric, but you're act, but you're you, you you are acting. You are basically implying that most of even the current set of reform packages are like not constitutional, but like there's no evidence of that. No, you're no, just no. Like, I didn't you, say they're you, not you, constitutional. You're implying. I think the back, background checks and all that stuff. I think are fine. Um, I'm I'm talking specifically about red flag laws and about yeah, I'm talking specifically about red flag law. Like that is where and and that's why I'm saying think about it though for criminal in in the criminal justice system. There's no such thing as red flag for anything else. Like if I threaten somebody to go and kill them, you can come after me for threatening them, but you can't charge me or take away a constitutional right of mine. No, but actually in Florida, you could so. take, in Florida, there's a way you no, could, no, no, the gun can be taken can. away. You know, but that's my, my point is that we're putting guns in a category away from the entire criminal justice system, which, and trying to make it separate when- I just don't think that that's how it should work. Like, it should work in a way where if you do something, then you should be punished commiserate with what you did. And but dude, that doesn't. There's address not any, an acceptance of this. No, but but no, but once again, though, using a weapon to kill people is like a actually. This is this is actually as, as simple as this. Like, it seems to me that a very reasonable compromise for us. Okay, for example, the Uvalde shooter. All these warning signs, all these different bits. Someone should have been able to report him and have his guns taken away. That's my that's my baseline. Before well, he killed people, before he system, killed, before he killed twenty one people, the system that would create that could have significant, con both constitutional problems. It also could you know weaponize like. I, I mean, I've, I've laid it out here before. It also it could be weaponized within the system. We talked about, I just told you about the due process problems in terms of the burdens of proof. Like that is why, look, I understand it feels nice to say that. Um, the system that would have to be created in order to ensure that is rife with 
if not only effectiveness problems, what I think are constitutional problems. And yeah, I don't necessarily know if that's uh, big enough to price to pay. To be fair, we still don't know Salvador Ramos's juvenile record. So it's possible that the current system, and by the way, given the amount of times that the cops visited his house, I would not be surprised if the current system, the expanded background check system or whatever would have stopped that. If so, absolutely. I think that's great. Do you think Florida is an unconstitutional hellhole? Because like they've had this, they've had this I didn't say it was, I mean, look, it's, when we say hellhole, like I'm not saying it's happening now. I'm saying it has the potential for being misused. It's been used over 8,000 times. I don't know if every single one of those 8,000 times complies with the US Constitution. And by the way, that's how laws actually work. Like the way that things get evaluated are whether they pass constitutional muster at all times, not every time. I get it. Why do you I think? Get, why do you think the? Why do you think I'm the just laws? Saying, that's how laws what, work. I know, but I'm, I'm asking you, like, what? What? Yeah. But no, but but th this is my point, though. Like, you're just saying it's unconstitutional, or imply you're impl you are implying it is because you don't trust libs. That's what this comes down to. Well, it's not just libs. I don't trust the public health regime, which is in charge of uh, instituting this. And it's not even directionally liberal and could easily be used by anybody, which I think is wrong and I think is bad. So what I'm saying is that given the fact that state-by-state -state processes have clearly not yet abided by an actual high-proof due process standard, which we know in New Mexico and in several other states, because actually Florida probably has more due process baked into it, some of these other states. It's not even the best example. It's just the high-profile one because it happened after Parkland. I actually think uh, this is a good example. The worst red flag laws, Marshall, probably won't come from the red or the purple states. They'll probably come in the blue states. And then that also, look, those people have constitutional rights too. So the point that's, the, that is what I am trying to say, is that consider how laws work in America. It's not, does it work every time? It's, does it cons pass constitutional muster at all times? That is how the laws work currently on the books. I think it should work that way. This is always the argument about death penalties and all that stuff, right? Which is that the state, you know, should have to rise to an extraordinary high barrier. Like a lot of people seem to recognize this whenever it comes out. If it fails even once, then it's wrong. It's like, okay, well, that's how it works for everything. Well, no, that's not, it's actually not how it works for, for everything. Like once again, like the state taking a life is different than the state through due process. And once again, like listener homework. Um, Sagar and I like argue on this issue. So like, please send me. Yeah. Look, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> and, this, and this, this isn't, this isn't, and I'm, I'm not saying this. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying this in a like annoying, like prove to me I'm wrong. Cause I know I'm right. Like, no, like it's complicated and there are horror stories. Like you guys like write in, I'm talking to the audience here. Like you guys like write in all the time. Like, please like, let me know if there are like these horror stories. Um, to close this segment, uh, to actually close this episode though, I just want to say that like we're arguing here, but look, like here's what you have convinced me of, right? Like you have convinced me of like, let's say I'm like back in Oregon someday. If there is a red flag law, the first thing I need to be thinking about is this due process question yeah. to your point. Cause you're actually correct that it's not fair for me to, to act as if because look, I like the Florida status quo. I'll just be frank about that. But it's not a at all a good political analysis to assume the Florida law is going to be the standard across this country. Well, it's already on a not. Couple See, that's levels. the thing. It's it's yeah. already not the standard. Like the New York law, the California law, the New Mexico law. Like those are the ones. And look, a lot of people live there. Those people have constitutional rights too. 
Also, you know, I don't even, it hasn't come out yet, but there's a, uh, there's a major gun case in front of the, everybody's talking about abortion. There's a huge gun case ahead of the Supreme Court right now on New York's constitutional carry, which could expand this actually even further and set the standard way higher for the state's ability in order to regulate whether you're allowed to carry a firearm or not. That's going to have a major impact too. Not a lot of people are, are talking about that, but it's, it's due to come out sometime in the next two weeks. Yeah, well, in the next two weeks, you're also going to have that abortion case, so we're going to have to. It's going to get overshadowed. Topic. So the gun, yeah. but the gun, it's going to happen. Is what I'm saying. You know, I already know that. That from a media perspective, it's not necessarily going to get the play, but it's happening, and people should, people need to grapple with that. Yeah. Speaking of things that people need to grapple with, in my worst ever transition of all time, realignment listeners grapple with subscribing to our supercast. It's very important. If you've made it to this point in the show, we went for an hour and 15 minutes. You are an intense realignment listener. We'd love for you to support the show, realignment.supercast.com. For supercast listeners who are listening right now, definitely submit the AMA questions. People like that. Go to the same website where you can subscribe. Once again, that's realignment.supercast.com. If we get your support, hopefully that will just be, is it realignment.com? Realignment.com. Realignment. Hopefully, in the foreseeable future, there'll be realignment.com. Hope you all enjoyed this episode. And as usual, let us know what we should discuss in these segments. Reminder, Substack, subscription, bookshop, book purchases, and of course, huge thank you to Lincoln Network for supporting our work. We'll see you next time.